I fell into the hands of a corrupt detective. I was naive enough to believe that I would be able to just present all of my proof of actual innocence, that they would investigate adequately, and so that I wouldn't be going to prison because I was a good person, I hadn't done anything wrong. In the back of your mind, you say, well, when we go to a hearing or we go to court, the truth will come out. The prosecution from day one knew I was innocent and let false testimony go uncorrected from the lower courts all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. You have someone with a badge with ultimate and, and really, in that moment, unchecked authority. Don't presume that people are guilty when you see them on TV because it may just be a dirty DA that is trying to rise upward. This is Wrongful Conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Today I have two very special guests, and you'll learn more about that shortly. But first, I'm going to introduce them. Vanessa Gathers is our star today. Just months after the Crown Heights riots back in 1991, Gathers was called in for questioning for robbery and the beating of an elderly man inside of his Crown Heights apartment. The victim fell into a coma, then died. The case was classified a homicide. That's when controversial former NYPD detective Louis Scarcella took over the case. Five years later, Scarcella re-interviewed Gathers and said she made a full confession. Gathers was convicted on that confession alone. The former detective is in the middle of several cases where people went to prison for crimes they did not commit. D.A. Thompson and his team have already exonerated 17 men. Gathers is the 18th, the first woman. Right now, the DA's office is looking into at least 100 other cases. 58-year-old Vanessa Gathers will no longer be labeled a convicted felon after 10 years in prison for manslaughter. Brooklyn District Attorney Ken Thompson is expected to vacate her conviction. We're going to take a step to not only vacate Ms. Gathers' conviction, but to give her her good name back. Vanessa, welcome to the show. Thank you. And her badass attorney is here as well, Lisa Cahill. Welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Happy to be here. So, Vanessa, let's go back to when life was simpler, right? Because before this crazy incident happened, you were living basically a normal life like anyone else, right? Yes. Were you in a lot of trouble with the law? Was there a reason that they would have ever suspected you of being involved in a cold-blooded murder, a terrible beating death? Not at all. What were you doing? What was your life like? Where did you grow up? I grew up in um, Jersey City and North Carolina, and then I moved to New York in 79, and I started working. I was working in Manhattan. Doing what? I worked for Gristides. I worked for a lawyer when I first arrived to New York City. So just finding your way, doing different jobs, whatever. Yes, I stayed with um, Gristides for quite some time. The original job I had was working for a lawyer criminal lawyer, and I was just doing statements and filing and typing up notes. Things got slow, so later on, I I found a job with Christides. He let me stay on until I found something better. So you came to New York like 
most people do, I guess, to pursue your dreams and find your way, and you were finding your way, and things were going okay. Do you have a family when this came down? Yes, my family was in Jersey. I had a daughter. This case stems out of a murder that happened in 1991. There's a lot of things that are unusual about your case, but there are also a lot of things that we see that are common in wrongful convictions, including a false confession, which I think everyone is fascinated by and terrified of. I know I am. But in your case, this was a murder of a guy named Michael Shaw, I think, right? Yes. And he, he was a guy who was murdered in 1991. He was beaten to death by three women. Again, pretty unusual circumstance. And the reason we know he was beaten to death by three women is because he lived long enough to tell the tale. He died in the hospital. Yes. So originally, you were living in the area. Did you know about the crime when it happened? No, not at the time. No, I did not. I found out all that information later on. And how did you first become aware that this? Did you know the victim? I didn't know him per se. I just knew that he was like a picture quiz man that stayed in the window. He sat by the window all the time because I used to walk my dog around the block. But I didn't know his name. I didn't know him. From time to time, he would ask me to come over to the window and would I get him a pack of cigarettes? Which I did because I walked around the block and I walked my dog back and I just passed it to him through the window. Oh, so I, he lived on the first floor? Yes. And so when he was murdered, the word must have gotten around the neighborhood and, and you first heard about it from a detective. Is that right? Yes. And how did that come about? Because it's weird because you weren't arrested until many years later mm-hmm. when the case was cold and then you actually drew a terrible straw or bad break, whatever you want to call it, because... You got in the crosshairs of a guy who we know now is one of the worst detectives in the history of this country in terms of the damage that he did to an entire borough, really, and how he wrecked havoc on so many people in so many cases and a whole system. So how how did it come about that you first encountered Detective Scarcella? I believe I was walking my dog at the time, and I mean... <laughs> Detective Scarcelli mm-hmm. and his partner, Shamil, approached me and asked me about the incident. And I said, I didn't know. I actually, I didn't even know the man's name. I didn't know who he was. I just know him by sight, you know, from sitting in the window. That's all I knew about this individual. But then later on, after that incident, I didn't, I didn't see the man anymore after a while. You know, I would still walk my dog, but the man was not there in the window anymore. So they approached you on the street? Yes. And were they friendly? Were they hostile? Did they put you in cuffs? Well, how did this whole no, thing? No, they were friendly. They just asked me some questions. They also asked me about the same thing that I know the man, and I told them I didn't know who they were talking about at first. And then when they was telling me that he lived there, and I said, oh, yeah, I, rem- I remember seeing the man in the window, but I didn't know him per se. Did they tell you that he had been murdered? No, they didn't state that. They just said something happened. There was an incident with this guy. They was trying to find out what happened. And Lisa, let's turn to you. So what was going on there? First of all, Vanessa was sort of a person that you would not really think would be involved in anything like this. I mean, and, and meeting her now, she's such a gentle soul. The idea that she would be involved in a beating death seems so far-fetched. I certainly agree with that. But one of the big mysteries always in the case was this business about Scarcella stopping Vanessa because she was a woman walking a white dog. Let me back up. 
Right after Mr. Shaw was assaulted, he didn't die till months later. So it didn't become a homicide investigation for about four months' time. So immediately after the assault, it's basically a robbery investigation. But detectives are working the robbery and the beating. They're investigating somewhat. And those detectives interviewed the super in Mr. Shaw's building twice and memorialized that interview. And the super never said anything about Vanessa Gathers. He never described Vanessa Gathers. He never said, oh, there's a woman with a white dog in the neighborhood who you should talk to. None of that is reflected in those interview notes. But Scarcella consistently testified that the reason he stopped Vanessa was because after Mr. Shaw died, it did become a homicide investigation, obviously, and Scarcella was assigned the case. He testified that one of the first things he did was go interview the super. He claimed that the super said one of the women who used to talk to Shaw and was friendly with Shaw was a woman in the neighborhood with a white dog. Now, suspiciously, Scarcella never memorialized that interview with the super as you're supposed to do and as two prior detectives had done when they interviewed the super. We always thought it was suspicious that there was never any memorialization of that. Why he, in fact, stopped Vanessa, I really don't know. I mean, I suppose it's conceivable the super said that, but the super was dead by the time of trial, so no one really knows. Well, we do know that the victim said that it was three women, so the one thing you had in common with the perpetrators was that you were a woman, right? But there's a lot of women, so (laughs) you just... And we know now that Scarcella didn't really care whether you were the perpetrator or not. He just cared about getting convictions, and... He was very good at it, actually. I mean, in a very nefarious and terrible way, he was um, famous, actually, for solving cases. And that's probably what he was after. So he saw you, figured he would stop and talk to you, and maybe he was bored, maybe he had nothing else to do. But it came and went, right? And then you went back to your life, and, you know, eventually you found out that Mr. Shaw had died, I'm, I'm sure, and, mm-hmm. and life went on. Well, that's basically what happened. Well, it was 92, actually, when he came around. I think April or May or something of 1992 when he came, the initial visit with him. And then the next time I saw him was 1997. He's knocking on my door. So he came to your home? Yes. And what transpired next? I mean, you had no reason to think that you would ever be a suspect in anything like this. No. And probably the memory of the whole thing had faded to some extent, right? Because it was old, it was it was a long time ago. I, I had already forgotten about him and the questioning at that time. I mean, I stayed in the same building. I didn't move. If I had anything to hide, I think I would have left. I mean, a lot of people in the neighborhood moved out, but I was still there. So there was no reason for me to try and run or do anything negative regarding this matter because I know I had no involvement in it. One of our hypotheses was that Vanessa was literally the only one who had any connection to Shaw who was actually still available to Scarcella, still living in the same building. So by now, 
It had turned into a homicide investigation. Scarcella had decided that he was going to solve a cold case, or maybe not, probably many of them, right? So when he did come see you six years after the murder, what happened? What was his approach this time? Was he friendly? Was he hostile? Did he put you in cuffs? He was very friendly. I actually was never in cuffs at that time. We spoke. He asked me the same questions. He asked me, should I come to the precinct? You know, I applied, and I went there. He showed me some mugshots and stuff. He asked me about some of the women in the neighborhood that I know in them. There's a couple that I did see that had, I guess, criminal records. And that was basically it. He never stated to me that I was uh, a suspect or anything. I had no knowledge of that. Up until the time that we did, after the polygraph and all of that other information that transpired, he had my history. I told him where I was working. You know, he knew where I lived. I didn't have anything to hide from this officer. I cooperated the best that I could. I was working at the Brooklyn Family Court, and he picked me up that morning. He came to my job and said he wanted me to come take a polygraph test. I went with him. And everything. I had nothing to hide. So after that, we stayed at the precinct. All of these other things transpired. And he kept stating to me that he was going to take me home. It got late into the evening before I left the precinct. It was night. It was night when I did leave there. And he kept saying that my companion, that he would contact him. He never did. He just continued to lie, lie, lie. He was frightening. He took his jacket off. He had his gun exposed, and he kept on threatening me, saying, I was there, I was there. And I kept telling him, no, I wasn't. And and it just went back and forth like that for quite some time. So he went sort of progressively from friendly to he'd pick you up, and you probably were... Like most people, I mean, you were a law-abiding citizen. It wasn't like you had a long rap sheet, right? No, I didn't have no knowledge of the law. So he and I think he really knew that. So he know, because I don't remember him randomizing me or anything. I don't remember all of that. As far as getting a lawyer, I didn't know I needed one because I didn't know I was a, I was the, the person that was supposed to have committed this crime. So. Right, and Lisa, that's something that always bothers me is that. People like Vanessa, who are innocent, are very likely to waive their Miranda rights and speak freely and not request a lawyer. And if you're listening to the show now, I'm going to encourage you, if you do get picked up, don't assume anything, right? Just request a lawyer. And other than that, don't say anything other than your name, your address. And that's basically it, right? And once you ask for a lawyer, they're not allowed to ask you more questions, right? That's right. That's right. I mean, they may do it anyway, but they'll be breaking the law. Yeah, I mean, it is a tragic and cruel irony that people like Vanessa who go in wanting to help, right, and wanting to be cooperative and good citizens and help the police end up often really on the terribly wrong end of the stick because of the fact that they just don't know and they get taken advantage of, which is exactly what happened here. That's right. And one of the issues that we identified with the polygraph, which was basically how Scarcella kicked off that morning with the polygraph, a polygrapher is supposed to sit down alone with the subject and basically explain to the subject why they're there this morning. And, for example, to say, do you know why you're here? You are here because you're suspected 
of involvement in this incident, and that's what I want to talk to you about today. And in fact, this particular polygraph never went through that exercise with Vanessa, and she didn't know any better. Someone would say, well, what do you think when someone's polygraphing you? But Vanessa had had no prior experience with this. She was just trying to do what they asked her to do. Right. And, and again, if you don't have anything to hide and if you are telling the truth, you'd think, well, why shouldn't I take a polygraph? But not such a great idea. Well, now we get to the part that gives me a stomachache is this whole process that takes place in the interrogation room when someone, in this case, Garcella, but it happens all over the country, when a detective is determined to get a confession and they're not necessarily determined to get the truth. In your case, they had no reason to believe that you had any involvement, and yet they approached you and interrogated you as if they basically had everything in the world, every reason in the world to suspect that you were the actual killer. Ultimately, you confessed to this crime you didn't commit, and that's the number one thing, Vanessa. When I talk to people who aren't familiar with these issues, Everybody says, oh, I would never confess. I, they couldn't get me to do it. That's crazy. I would, I'm too strong. I'm tough. I would never confess. That's, you know. And I'm like, well, let me tell you something. So how, how did they get you? I mean, you're an intelligent woman. You're a law-abiding person. You would know enough to know that that's a, a disaster, right? But, but you did it. Yes, I did. You're in a tiny room with these two police detectives, and you don't even know your rights. I didn't know. I was terrified. And then the badgering started, and the jacket came off, like I said, exposed it, and he started threatening me and leaning over and, you know, making all of these accusations and stuff. And I continually told him that I did not commit this crime. I was not there. And when he wrote the statement, I told him, we were going back and forth. He's trying to tell me to state this and state that. This must have been confusing. It was because I'm like, I'm not understanding what is going on as far as what he's writing on paper. He, he tried to get me to write that statement. And I said, I'm not writing anything because I don't know what happened. This is part of the process, right? And it's the crazy thing in this country that police are allowed to lie. They can say they have a satellite image of you committing the crime. They can say that they found your fingerprints. They can say that they have witnesses. They can say almost anything they want. What they can't say is they can't threaten you with, say, you're going to get the death penalty if you're not. There's certain things they can't do like that. But as far as the facts surrounding the case, they can lie all they want, which I think is crazy. And it doesn't. it's not that way in most other Western European countries. Mm-hmm. And Jason, the reason they do that is to put the subject in a helpless feeling situation so then they can get them to turn and do what they want to do. They make you feel helpless and then they extend an olive branch. Just sign this and I'll take you home. Just help me out here. I'll get you out of here. But the first thing is making the subject feel helpless and they do that with these false evidence ploys. So which which lies did they tell you? Well, he told me that he had fingerprints, he had eyewitnesses, he has proof that I was in the house, and I kept telling him, no, that's not true. And to me, it's like now I'm getting confused because I'm saying there's no way possible that this could be. But, you know, he continued to tell me different stories and different things that, well, at that point he said, you might be going to jail. These are the things that would happen to you once you get there. You need to sign this paper that he wrote. And he said, I'll take you home. So I'm constantly like, 
I don't know what to do now. I'm here by myself in this little room, and I'm crying. I'm upset. I'm hysterical. And he kept stating to me, I'm going to let you call home. I said, I want to call home. I felt that if I called my friend, maybe he would give me some information. What should I do? He denied my phone calls because I constantly told him I would like to call home. He said, well, when we finish, you could call home. I'll call. I'll have his partner call. Let him know where I'm at. I'm saying because at this point of the day, I should be home, which I wasn't. So now my companion had no idea where I was or what happened to me at all. Yeah, so all of this just adds to the stress and confusion and terror. It's really terror, right, that you're experiencing at this point because you don't know what these guys are capable of. And, you know, there's nobody but you, and you're overmatched. You are really helpless. I mean, they won't let you, in many cases, they won't give you any food, any water. You're just going to sit there, and they go in, and they go out, and they have this all, it's a whole protocol. It's designed to do exactly what it did, which is to get you to be willing to do basically anything and confess to anything, right? Mm -hmm. What's crazy on top of all the rest of this is that they were not only committing an act of evil, right, which is knowingly extracting a confession from a person that they had every indication was innocent of the crime, but also... They were sloppy. And why I say that is because the confession that you signed didn't make any sense. Because the facts that were on that piece of paper didn't match the evidence from the case, right? They, they got you to say that he was in a wheelchair, which he wasn't. That it was a robbery of $60, which we find out later that the guy probably didn't have $60. There was a number of other facts in there that were just wrong. And that's so weird because, I don't know, Lisa, it seems to me, if you were doing this you would at least try to get someone to sign a confession that's accurate to the facts of the case. But they didn't even bother to do that. That's right. And one of the interesting things here was that there were really two confession statements. One was the handwritten statement, which Scarcella himself wrote out, and Vanessa merely signed. And this was consistent with protocol at the time. There was a video restatement of the confession, and that is led by an assistant district attorney with Scarcella in the room. Now, Scarcella could not control the questioning by the assistant district attorney. Vanessa testified that they basically rehearsed and Scarcella told her what to say in the video, but he could not control some of the questions. And the ADA, for example, asked, was the old man standing? Was he sitting? And Vanessa said he was sitting. And he said, what was he sitting in? And Scarcella had not researched, was there ever a wheelchair in the apartment? Because Vanessa then guessed. She said he was sitting in a wheelchair. Right, because he was old, so that might have made sense, right? But it's not true. Right. And so there was a gotcha for us as the defense team. That was a great mistake in the confession, which we could use to prove it was coerced. And the cane, the ADA asked, what kind of cane was used to hit Mr. Shaw? And Vanessa again guessed, because she she had no idea. She guessed that it was a wooden cane. In fact, it was a metal cane. So that's how some of these mistakes came in, is that Scarcella could not control 
the ADA and his questioning. Thank God, because otherwise we might not have caught these mistakes. In the fall of 2008, a sleepy Seattle suburb was shocked by a crime that no one could have expected. A local football star planned a daring bank robbery, complete with decoys, disguises, and an outlandish getaway plan. He drew the whole thing up, just like a game-winning play on the field, and almost got away with it. The sneak follows a twisting story of a once great athlete who committed that crime and how the robbery forever changed the small town where it occurred. Be sure to subscribe to The Sneak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Is there something that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, then BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialists in issues including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And remember, anything you share is confidential. Now you can get help on your own schedule, at your own pace, and your own time. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions and chat, text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor also, remember this, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Wrongful Conviction listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code WRONGFUL. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com wrongful. That's betterhelp.com slash wrongful. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. Betterhelp.com slash wrongful. So ultimately, you end up going to trial. But before you get to trial, they held you in Rikers Island for 13 months. Yes. How terrifying is that? Very, very terrifying. But prior to me getting there, after all of the confession and everything, they still never told me I was being arrested for the crime. They bypassed my house. They still stated to me that they were taking me home. And we got to the precinct. I said, why didn't you pass my house? Oh, we have to make one more stop. This is still lies. And we got to the precinct, and at that point, then he said he had to handcuff me. I was never cuffed. I was never told I was arrested. And... They had to cuff me to take me into that building, which was central booking. I didn't even know that. And then I was put in a cage. Wow. And I just stayed there until they said I was supposed to see a judge or whatever. I had to. It was all a blur because I don't recall all of that inf- that happened at that time. And the next day, I guess that I was on a bus going to Rikers Island. And upon my arrival, you know, they do the strip search, you're naked, you're, you're walking around in a sheet, in a cage with a whole bunch of people, other women. And, you know, and then you're put into a cell. And at that time, when I, when they put me to a housing unit, I was able to call home, finally, and tell him where I was at. And what was that phone call like? It was... He was very upset. I was upset. I was hysterical. And I still couldn't think of how I landed here, you know, in Rikers Island. It was just, it was terrible. Uh, You have no clothes. You have to rinse out what you have on. You took a shower. You rinse out what you have on and hang it in your cell. 
Hopefully it'll be dry by morning because that's all you have. And that was it. Till the next morning, then you're taken out and you go to the mess hall, as they call it, and and you're just there in that space until they put you for two weeks, I guess. It's two weeks before they put you in population, and then you they assign you another. Well, I was living in a dormitory, in a dorm where it's a whole bunch of beds and women, half toilets. There was no privacy at all. You take showers with a whole bunch of other women in one big circle thing, and you just got spigots coming out the wall. And it was a lot of different things that happened. It's, it's terrible just being in that place. Um, a lot of different things go on, women and women. I started working the night shift. I did whatever I had to do so I wouldn't be on, on the dorm at night. I just didn't. It was just disgusting for me. I couldn't deal with that part of it. So ultimately, 13 months later, you end up finally getting your day in court. Yes. And you had a lawyer who didn't, seems like he did the minimum amount of work that he could do. Now, you know, I don't know, he may have been working on 400 other cases. There are certainly lawyers at public defenders in New York who are so overburdened, but that doesn't matter when it's your life on the line, right? And, That's true. And we don't know the personal circumstances that this individual was in, but one way or another, he was not prepared and did not represent you adequately, and you really didn't have a chance. That's true. Well, I, like, the attorney, I mean, my my um, companion kept asking him in court, when we went to court, could he speak with him? He always said yes, but he always left the courtroom. He adjourned my case on numerous occasions, so there was nothing that he did. There was no investigation because, as far as I'm concerned, when this incident happened, I don't see where there's a police investigation done or anything. By the time that they decided the man had passed away, there was dust. The family had came in and cleaned the house, did a lot of things. So, therefore, there was no fingerprints. There was nothing. The house was cleaned because of family members. This is all the information I found out later on after I was incarcerated. Another terrible aspect of pretrial detention is that I'm guessing your lawyer didn't visit you. No, he did not. Right. And there's a reason behind that, too, which is that for a lawyer to go to Rikers Island and visit you, basically that's going to take their whole day. They don't make it easy. It's a whole process you have to go through. They have to travel to the jail. So people who are not in the system, right, people who are out on bail or on their own recognizance, have a much better chance because they can meet more freely with their lawyers and get better representation, which is another thing that I think it's important for people to understand. It's one of the reasons why our bail system is so unfair and ill-conceived. So you were in that exact situation where you're facing a murder rap, your lawyer's not visiting you, he's not really doing any work. Every time he comes in and adjourns the case, you go right back to Rikers Island. And so... There's just nothing that's fair or equitable about that. And ultimately, though, 13 months later, you did get your day in court. By this point, I mean, you'd been through so much, and you'd been lied to by the people that were supposed to protect you, and you'd been let down by the other person who's supposed to protect you, which is your lawyer. The whole system is failing you. But when you went to court, did you believe that justice would finally be done and people would see that you were an innocent person? Yes, I did. That's the reason why I testified on my own behalf, because I didn't have anyone to testify for me. And, I mean, Scott Selly, he went out of his way 
to make sure that family members were there. And a lot of them had moved away because of the time lapse. They were in another state, but he brought a lot of them there so that the jury could see that. There was a large family, and it just made things move a little smoother for him to get the conviction. But I did speak to the family. I spoke to the judge. I even wrote a letter to the judge stating that I did not commit this crime. So, Lisa, what happened? Well, Vanessa testified that the confession was coerced and that she was not there. Now, the jury deliberated for, I think, over 13 hours. It was a lengthy deliberation, relatively speaking. And they acquitted her on the top count, which was murder. But there must have been some kind of compromise because they did convict her on the manslaughter. And the only evidence against her was the confession. But you have to remember, this was back in 97, and juries were not sensitized to the issues we all know today about how innocent people can confess. The science was not there then, and it would take a lot for a jury to reject a confession that someone seemed to have voluntarily made. And there was no false confession expert who testified on her behalf at trial, just Vanessa's word against Scarcella's word. And obviously, Scarcella at that time was a senior detective who nobody had reason to question. There had been no allegations yet that he had engaged in any corrupt activity. So it was reasonable for a jury to buy Scarcella's account instead of Vanessa's, and I think that's what happened. If the same case were tried today, I think a jury would be much more attuned to coercion issues and that false confessions can happen. I think it would be a different outcome today, frankly. Yeah, and I want to make sure that people who are listening really take that in because now we know there's so much research on false confessions. There's a wonderful show on Netflix called The Confession Tapes. So many people have seen the confessions in other programs like Making a Murderer that are so obviously false. We know that in DNA exonerations, over 20% of the cases involve false confessions. It's a scary phenomenon, but it's very real. And so, Vanessa, at that moment when you were convicted, because the jury did come back in and declare you guilty of second-degree manslaughter, what was that like? I think I just went numb. I didn't believe it. I didn't think I would get that kind of time anyway for this year, even if they didn't believe me. I really didn't even realize how much time I had to do. I just didn't believe it. So that nobody believed me, you know, what I was stating to them. I mean, I know he had some issues in the past, and he just came back forward trying to just get a conviction because he did have some problems in the department, but he just came gung-ho at me. And I'm not realizing that he was setting me up the whole time just to take the fall for this crime. But he did, and he probably got some pats on the back and some, you know, sort of accolades for solving another cold case. And mm-hmm. and you were, you know, just a little detail to him. That's all. He probably never, probably went, I'm guessing he went home that night, had a nice dinner, you know, watched some TV and went to sleep. So you end up serving 10 years in prison That's where true. you had a perfect disciplinary record. And the whole time you maintained your innocence, even though... 
there were times when you came before a parole board and it would have been better for you in some ways to say that you were guilty because they would have probably sent you home. Yes, that's true. But the first couple of times I went, I did not. I did, I kept, I stated that I did not do the crime. But they don't want to hear that. They want to hear that you're remorseful, that you feel bad, that the victim. I the can't thing. feel remorse when I didn't do something. I understand. You understand? You, how, how do you feel? You don't know the person. You didn't do the crime. So how can you feel remorse? I mean, I feel remorse when someone's getting beaten or something like that. I actually seen it happen. But as far as me doing something like that, never, never. Vanessa's right. In the first two parole hearings, she said, I did not do what they said I did. But eight years in, with a perfect disciplinary record, and seeing how little asserting her evidence got her with the parole board previously, in her third parole hearing, she appeared to admit guilt. And we retained a fabulous expert who was able to explain the conundrum that someone like Vanessa is facing. And Vanessa testified in her deposition that everyone on the inside was telling her, you're an idiot. You've got to tell them what they want to hear. Just tell them you did it. And so Vanessa, in the third parole hearing, appeared to admit guilt when, in fact, obviously, she was not guilty, but it was the only way she could see to get out early. At that point, it didn't matter. They... It didn't matter. Even in the third hearing, they hit me again with another two years, which was past my CR date, my conditional release. If it was up to them, I would have still been in there until 2008. Anyone who knows me knows I wear glasses all the time. It's like a part of my face. And the thing is, it's so annoying going to a store and trying glasses on and going through that whole process. Warby Parker has solved the problem. I just participated in the home try-on program, and here's what happened. They sent me the glasses. I tried them on in my office, five different pairs. I showed them to my friends. I, you know, looking at other people. What do you think? This, that, the other thing. I look in the mirror. I picked the one that suited me the best, and then I sent back the other four. And here's the thing. The glasses, you're not going to believe this. They start at $95, including prescription lenses. I mean, that's a small fraction of what I'm used to paying. And the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings, which is super important to me for obvious reasons. Anyway, the free home try-on program works like this. You order five pairs of glasses and you try them on absolutely free for five days. You can show anyone and then there's no obligation to buy. The shipping is free. It includes a prepaid return shipping label. So head to warbyparker.com conviction to take the quiz that comes before and then order your free home try-on. And now, introducing Scout by Warby Parker. And Scout is for you people, for everyone that wears contact lenses. And here's the thing. They're comfortable, they're breathable, and they're affordable. They're daily contact lenses. They're made from a super moist material that resists drying for lasting hydration and comfort. It's everything you want from a contact lens. Order a trial pack that includes six days worth of contacts for only $5. Unreal. And then receive $5 off your next Warby Parker order. Learn more. Go to warbyparker.com slash conviction. That's warbyparker.com slash conviction. Try it today. The 
Now we're going to get to the good part of the story, right? Because there is a happy ending or you wouldn't be sitting here now and you wouldn't be enjoying the nice, big, extended family that you now have. And so the good guys come to the rescue, right? You have Lisa and her team at Hughes, Hubbard and Reed and you have the Legal Aid Society. And then at just about the right time in Brooklyn, the Conviction Review Unit was established. And that unit has done phenomenal work in reversing many wrongful convictions, including last time I looked, it was seven or eight that Scarcella was directly responsible for, including yours. So let's talk about that because the the happy ending part of this story is really, really important because it requires people like Lisa and other dedicated professionals to go and reverse one of these things. It's hard. I mean, they don't make it easy at all. So how did it come about, Lisa? How did she end up getting justice after all? Credit initially unquestionably goes to the Legal Aid Society. This is what happened. Charles Hines was in the political fight of his career, and there had been an initial Scarcella-related exoneration in the David Ranta case. And the New York Times and Ken Thompson are breathing down Charles Hines' back. And he says, it's okay, everybody. I'm telling you right now, I am going to reinvestigate every trial conviction that Detective Scarcella touched. And Hines prepared a list, which has never been publicly available. I don't know anyone that's ever seen it. But initially, it had at least 50 names of defendants on it. And what the DA's office did was they contacted the last lawyer of record in each of those 50 cases. Well, the Legal Aid Society was the last lawyer of record in a a good half of those, about 25. And so Legal Aid went to firms around town looking for partners, which is how Hughes Hubbard got involved with the case. And we proceeded on a three-year partnership with legal aid. We reinvestigated the crime and marshaled our arguments, retained experts, and were able to make a persuasive pitch to the then district attorney, Ken Thompson, who had beaten Charles Hines in that election. And that is the short story of how we were able to get to the exoneration day. And Ken Thompson sadly died last year at the young age of 50. He was a good man and a decent man. He was a friend of mine. But he was so proud. Um, You know, he used to walk around with a picture of you. I don't know. (laughs) Did you know that? No, I know it's in his office, but I didn't know he had the picture with him. At his birthday party, he has this um, cardboard uh, thing. I'm holding my arms out wide to show how big it was. And then it was about a couple feet, three feet high. And on it, it had a picture of you and the other exonerees that he, his office had helped to exonerate. And so he was very proud of you and of the work that he and his team had done to help in your case. I remember him mentioning you specifically. So you should feel good about that. So when finally the light shone on you and on your case and justice was done and it was proven by all these good people that this had happened and that you were telling the truth all along, except when you were (laughs) lying because it was them telling you what to say, (laughs) right? I mean, that. but in fact, as you had been saying, you were innocent for so many years. What did that feel like when finally you got your life back? 
it felt great. And I was like, I'm saying I'm able to finally put this behind me. You, you don't know what, what you're feeling at that time because it's like, it's clear now that I didn't do it. I mean, you don't know what people think of you, whether you did this crime or not, because it's on record stating that you did. But I felt great. I mean, I felt relieved. I could now live my life without having that on my record. It's very difficult to try and find a job, to move on in life because you have this hanging over your head. Now my record is clean. I can state that I have no record, which makes life a lot easier for me because people look, do a background check. There's nothing there. It's nothing there because you never had anything there because you were always you always were a law-abiding citizen. Yes, and, and but... As far as the law and the criminal justice system said, yes, you have a record. It's on there. Not anymore. <laughs> Not um, anymore. It's been taken away. And now, you know, there's another aspect of this, which is something that's so troubling. You know, when we live in a country where we have approximately 4.4% of the world's population, but we have 33% of the world's female prison population, which is just so outrageous. I mean, it's a national disgrace, the way we treat women in this country. And... When somebody like you is locked up, you're missing out on your children's lives, right? And sure. your children, grandchildren, and that dynamic, I mean, that must have been an extra punishment. It was. My granddaughter was like only a year old when I went in. And it caused a lot of chaos between me and my daughter because I wasn't there for her. You understand? When she needed her mother to help her. When she had questions about raising her daughter, I wasn't there. She couldn't even call you? And, no. And not only weren't I mean, you there, but you were far away, right? That That's another thing. That I, I don't was wanna... in Bedford for a while, and then I finally moved to, they moved me to Bayview, which is in Manhattan, which was made closer because I didn't get a lot of visits. I didn't get visits because my family couldn't come to the facility because it's, we we're poor. We didn't have money like that. I mean, even like... Um, my father was living at the time. He wanted to put up his farm. I wouldn't allow him to do that because they gave me a quarter million dollar bill. I'm saying, where do you think I'm going to get that kind of money from? It, it was difficult for everyone. I lost a lot of family members. I lost a brother, a sister, my uncles, my aunt. I lost even my, my mother, my father's brother. My, it was It was a lot of family members that passed away during my first year incarcerated. I couldn't attend anything because if you're in New York or you, you, if your family's out of state, you can't go to the services. So that was hard for me to deal with, too. It was a lot of things that, that I missed out on because of my incarceration. So you had to endure the death of numerous family members while you were behind bars for something you didn't do and you weren't even allowed to go to the funeral. No. Right. So, I mean, I, it's so amazing to me that you're here now. Standing up straight, proud, like able to put a sentence together, right? <laughs> able to just have a life when, when you've been through such an incredibly terrible ordeal that that you never deserved. I mean, it's just it's crazy. So now the good news is you have gotten your life back, right? I mean, this this yes. thing actually happened almost twenty years ago. It must be crazy to think about that. And now you've been out for some time. And what's the situation now? You settled your lawsuits, right? Which is great. Yes. And it's, it's worth noting that Scarcella not only ruined so many people's lives, 
and left so many crimes unsolved, leading to many more crimes happening because obviously when he arrested and was able to get convictions on the wrong people, the right people were out there committing more crimes, right? Mm -hmm. So he's got that. And then also there's been tens of millions of dollars paid out to so many victims of his by the city, which is taxpayer money. So there's nothing cute or funny about what this guy was doing. When these guys behave in this way who are supposed to be protecting us and keeping us safe, it has so many terrible consequences across the board. So now, where are you living? How's your life? What's your family situation? I want to hear. Well, I'm living in Jersey City now, although I was living in Manhattan until 2014 and working. (laughs) I was working from the date that I got out of prison because I met a couple that gave me a job. And I worked with them for almost eight years until they retired. (laughs) And then now I'm living in Jersey City. My mother has Alzheimer's. That's one of the reasons I moved back to Jersey City where she is. I recently purchased a home, August 11th. Congratulations. I have the first one, and my daughter has a second. It's a two-family house, and she's upstairs with her daughter and her granddaughter, my granddaughter, my great-granddaughter, and my daughter. So we all live in together right Do you have now. any boys in your family? We do have boys. <laughs> I have brothers, but as far as me, it's four generations of females. Well, five if you put my mother in there, but it's just females. <laughs> you got four generations living under one roof in Jersey City. It sounds incredible. And yes. What, and isn't that nice, though, that now you're able to make up for the time that you lost with your family. Now you have your whole, like, so many of you all there together. I mean, it must be just a joy for you. It is. <laughs> It is. It's, it's wonderful. I can see my granddaughter, my great-granddaughter at any time. If I need to go somewhere, my granddaughter does have a car. She's working, so she can take me, and then I get to babysit my granddaughter. <laughs> so that's amazing. Yeah. Well, listen, I'm happy that things finally worked out. I want to apologize to you for what the city and the state did to you. There's no excuse for it, but I'm glad you're here. Now, one of my favorite parts of the show often is to turn the microphone over to our featured guest and see, is there anything else you want to share with the audience? Well, no, I'm just saying that, well, during the time that I was in there, I mean, I wasn't going to let the time do me. I was going to do the time. So I got myself involved with a lot of different activities throughout the prison. I worked hard to stay in touch with my family. I would read my granddaughter books on you know, on video and send the books. There's a lot of programs in there. There's a lot of things you could do, even though you're fighting your case, but do something positive. You know, don't let the negativity rule you. And Lisa, any final thoughts? I would just say, having known Vanessa now for five or six years, she is an exceptional person. And the only way I think she was able to get through this ordeal was her strength of character. She got into prison, and I think this woman just put her head down and said, I'm going to get through this. And she just was forward thinking. She never obsessed about, how did this happen? How did I get here? It was just one day at a time, I've got to get out of here. And she mentioned the couple that hired her right after prison. I just want to speak to that because I think it's so telling about Vanessa. Literally, a wealthy couple was volunteering at Bayview, uh, husband and wife. 
Vanessa was running the GED program. She was running this thing, that thing. And they elbowed each other and said, why is she here? We don't get it. She's not like anyone else in here. And they befriended Vanessa. And literally one week after she was released, she was in a full-time job working for them. And she was the chief administrator of their very successful company and worked for these people for seven years. They trusted her. They loved her. They could see what she was capable of. And, you know, my client is just an extraordinary woman. And it's a testament to her character that she was able to get through this. Well, both of you are extraordinary women. So, Vanessa, Lisa, thank you so much for coming in and appearing on the show. Uh, You've been listening to a very special episode of Wrongful Conviction with our guests, Vanessa Gathers and Lisa Cahill. Thank you for having me. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps. And you know, I'm a proud donor to The Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and in so doing, helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. It's easy. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I want to thank our amazing producers, engineers, and editors, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, at Wrongful Conviction, and on Facebook, at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1 and PRX. I'm excited to tell you about a new serialized podcast called American Jihadi. If you're into investigative journalism, if you're a news junkie, or if you love great nonfiction storytelling, it's a must listen. American Jihadi tells the incredible true story of the unbelievable relationship between journalist Christoph Putzel and Omar Hamami. Throughout the eight-episode series, Christoph recounts his investigation into the life of Omar, an American-born U.S. citizen who became leader of the Somali Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab, landing him on the list of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. From Omar's hometown in Alabama to war-torn Somalia, Christoph seeks to get answers. Why would a Southern Baptist turn to terrorism? And how close should a journalist get to his source? Listen to American Jihadi, out now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.